Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you that we see uh, the, your light and your life passing on through generations. And we rejoice with uh, Glenn and Fiona as to see Callum setting out on a path they both set out on many years ago. And uh, now as a young man, just uh, taking those steps, we pray for Callum that he would grow in his faith and uh, this experience would be just the beginning of where you take him and use him in for your name and your purpose and your glory to spread the good news of the Lord Jesus and father as we come to this final message in the book of Zechariah we just pray that you would light our hearts that you would open our eyes that you you would just fill us with a sense of your presence the assurance in whatever we're facing, in tough places, uh, and even if uh, we're in a place that doesn't seem to be achieving much. Lord, we just pray that you would help each one to know that you are there at all stages as we look at what you have done through this book. And so we seek you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Messiah... In Zechariah, it's a key theme throughout the book, and uh, what I wanted to do is overview it again. It's a summary overview. Uh, at the very start, we did an overview, and uh, there's some obviously some uh, cross comparison. But um, what I particularly wanted to see for you to see is the role that Jesus plays in each chapter of the book. Chuck Swindoll said, have you struggled with discouragement? I wonder if there uh, is anyone here who at some point hasn't struggled with discouragement. Uh, And his suggestion is, read Zechariah. He says, while the book contains its share of judgments on the people of Judah and beyond, it overflows with hope in the future reign of the Lord over his people. It's easy to get caught up in the oftentimes depressing events of day-to-day life, to lose our perspective and live as people without hope. The book of Zechariah serves as a correction for that tendency in our lives. We have a hope that is sure. How refreshing. I'm going to give you some introductory background on Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet during the time of the return of the Jews from Babylonian exile. His prophecies bring us hope and promise of the coming of the Messiah. As David Levy notes, the name Zechariah itself means God remembers. The book is the 11th and the longest of what are commonly called the 12 minor prophets. And the historical setting, along with the books of Haggai and Malachi, 
is the post-exile period, or it's referred to as the post-exilic period, if you want to get really technical, uh, uh, after Judah was delivered from 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And it starts with the uh, return from exile. You have to have fairly good glasses to read. It's a bit smaller on the big screen than what I've been looking at uh, day by day, but... Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai, and both men encouraged the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem uh, after the return from exile. As we mentioned, there are three uh, post-exilic prophets, that's post-exile prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. All three spoke to encourage the spiritual and moral reconstruction of the returned remnant, Haggai and Zechariah spoke primarily about their spiritual and religious needs centred around rebuilding the temple. Malachi spoke of their moral and social needs centred around building the nation itself. Now, we gave you at the start an overview of how the book works and there are two major sections. What's referred to here is the present. It's the time of Zechariah. He's writing at about 520 BC. And uh, um, it, you have four parts. You have the introduction, which just states the purpose of the book. It's a prologue. Uh, then eight night visions up to chapter 6, verse 8. Then uh, some encouragement to Joshua the priest and some questions and answers. The second part of the book deals with... Uh, the first and second coming of the Lord. These are predict future predictions. They're way ahead of, of uh, uh, Zechariah's time, 500 years for the first coming, and of course, uh, um, uh, at least two and a half thousand years or more for the second coming. So that, that gives you a picture of how the book breaks down. In the eight night visions, Zechariah... Uh, Now it's working, yep. In the eight night visions, Zechariah's prophetic visions were significant and gave direction to the people. From the horseman to the measuring line, which we'll see as we go through chapter by chapter quickly, all were symbolic. Well, yeah, they, they all represented as, as spiritual truths and uh, things to come. Then you have the royal lineage. He proclaimed the coming of a righteous king who would establish peace and prosperity in Israel. And in the promise of the Messiah in Zechariah, in just broad overview terms before we go through chapter by chapter, you have the promise of a righteous king. Zechariah prophesied that a righteous king would come to the humble city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey, bringing salvation to the world. But his role would also involve that of the high priest. Another Messianic prophecy in Zechariah describes a branch that will grow from the root of Jesse and will be both king and priest. This is none other, of course, than Jesus Christ. And then you have the reigning king. Zechariah closes with a focus on a restored Jerusalem, a faithful remnant of Israelites and Gentiles from all nations coming to worship him at the Feast of Tabernacles during his millennial reign. So we go back to the overview and we're going to delve first into this uh, group, the present, the time of Zechariah in chapters 1 to 8. Uh, 
Zechariah begins in verses 1 to 6 in this prologue of chapter 1. It says, The word came to Zechariah, he himself was the son of a prophet, in the second year of Darius. God orders his people to return to him and not to follow the example of their fathers. Okay, Israel had disobeyed God and they'd had to go into a period of captivity for the judgment. So we come into chapter 1 and what we see Jesus or we see the Messiah and, and I've taken this out, this part of the outline from um, Charles Feinberg and I thought it was a very good, just quick summary of the heading of the chapters of Messiah in Zechariah. Um, here he is, the, the writing one. He says to them, return to me and I will return to you. Uh, and uh, then he begins in the chapter with a series of eight night visions. Uh, you see them all listed there. And, and if you see the pattern, they come out one way and go back down, they mirror back down the other way. It's a, a very common form of Hebrew poetry of Hebrew writing and to get the importance of, of what's being conveyed. But in vision one, um, we have the horsemen among the myrtle trees. The Lord, the message is that the Lord will again comfort Zion. Zechariah has a vision of a man on a red horse among myrtle trees in a ravine. And behind him were red sorrel, that is an off-yellow colour, and white horses. In this vision, coloured horses and horsemen symbolised the different nations and their intentions towards Judah. And these horses represented patrol. The man explains that they had gone throughout the whole earth and found peace. However, God is angry with the nations at ease because they assisted in Judah's and Jerusalem's suffering. He had appointed them to bring judgment on Israel, but they'd gone way further than God uh, had wanted. An angel then tells the prophet that God still loved Israel and would restore Jerusalem. The Lord's house will be built in Jerusalem and comfort Zion. And so then we come to vision two within the same chapter, and it's four horns and four craftsmen. Zechariah has a vision of four horns symbolising the four nations that scattered God's people. God judges the nations that attacked Israel. And the angel tells him that the horns are four kingdoms that opposed Israel, Assyria, Egypt, Babylon and Medo-Persia. And the craftsmen are coming to throw down these horns. In other words, God, through, uh, through the skill of his servants, would defeat Israel's enemies. And what you have here is the picture of the man on the horse is really representation of Messiah in Jesus. He's in control. He's, he's sending out his, uh, his patrol and he knows what's happening and he brings encouragement to the people who are struggling at this time and are discouraged that I am with you and I know what's happening. In chapter 2, we have the picture of the measuring line. It, it, it goes to vision 3. Uh, Zechariah sees a man holding a measuring line, and when the prophet asks the man where he's going, the man says he's going to measure the city of Jerusalem. 
And the picture of this, this picture is that Jerusalem has a divine protector. The Lord, it says, will provide a wall of fire around Jerusalem and be glory in her midst. The exiles are exhorted to return from the north. He who touches God, and it says that he who touches God's people touches the apple of his eye. And if you, those that were here when we did that, uh, it talks about touching the pupil. Um, very tender spot of God's eye. This vision represents God's promise that Jerusalem will be expanded and its measure will one day live, and its people will one day live in safety as the Lord judges Israel's enemies. And he says to them, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, when the Lord dwells amid Jerusalem, many nations will be drawn unto him. Many nations will join themselves to the God of Israel. We saw that in the latter part of chapter 14 as well. Uh, but here he is, he's saying, I not only see, but I've already planned, I've already sized up uh, the way Jerusalem will be, and he gives dimensions and those sort of things. So this is, this is our Messiah, our Lord, the Lord Jesus. Not only does he see and measure, but in chapter four, chapter three, he's the cleansing one. Vision four, Zacharias sees Joshua the high priest standing in filthy clothes. It's his spiritual state. He is before the angel of the Lord and Satan stands to the side of accusing Joshua. He doesn't have to lie, he doesn't have to make up. <laughs> what he's saying is true of the state of God's people. The Lord rebukes Satan and Joshua's filthy garments are removed and he is given clean garments. It's just like the picture of our salvation. Uh, outside of Christ we stand condemned. And Satan's condemnations bear weight in the sense that yes, they're true. But of course, Jesus has made provision. And for the people of Israel here, he's made provision. And uh, Joshua's filthy garments are removed and he has given clean garments. God himself explains the vision. Joshua will be blessed in his service to the Lord. Joshua is told that if he walks in the Lord's ways, he will judge his house. The vision is also symbolic of Israel's restoration as God's priestly nation, as it was called to in Exodus to be in Exodus 19.6. This vision of Joshua ends with the prediction of the ultimate high priest, the coming Messiah, symbolized by a branch and an all-seeing stone. The Lord says he is bringing forth his servant, the branch. A stone is laid before Joshua, which has seven eyes, the iniquity, iniquity of the land will be removed and everyone will invite his neighbour under his vine and his fig tree. In other words, he scans out, he sees all the wickedness and he deals with it. He's the cleansing, the cleansing one in uh, this chapter. In chapter 4, we come to vision 5 and he's the empowering one. And you see the, the golden lampstand and the two olive trees. Zechariah has a vision of a lampstand next to which there are two olive trees that supplied the seven lamps with oil through the seven pipes. 
The two olive trees are symbolic of Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and Zerubbabel was a descendant of King David, so it's a descendant of the kingly line. Uh, and Joshua, the high priest. The golden lampstand represents the temple and the temple-worshipping community. The, the picture is that God will give divine resources for his high priest and prince. And Zerubbabel will accomplish the work of rebuilding the temple through the Lord's Spirit. They've been trying for 16 years and they haven't seen much progress. They got the walls began to build and um, they, they really have been discouraged by opposition from those out. Uh, but he says... Uh, you will do it. And he reminds them, and you know that famous verse in uh, Zechariah 4, 6, not by power or not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Something we always need to remember. It's not in our cleverness. It's not uh, in human resources. It's not in fleshly resources, but it, it is in God's divine resources. And so he gives them this encouragement and he says to them, because many of them were thinking, oh, you know, we've, we've tried, and this plan that, that Joshua has for the temple, it's pretty puny if you remember the old temple, the previous temple. And he says in this chapter, do not despise the day of small things, or do not scorn the day of small beginnings. God was making the point that he would once again work through his people to lay the foundation of the temple and finish the work. He's the empowering one. In chapter 5, we see the judging one. And we go to vision 6 and 7. Vision 6 is the flying scroll. Zechariah has a vision of a flying scroll, 20 cubits by 10 written on both sides. And it's flying over the whole land. On it are written curses against thieves and perjurers. This vision speaks of God's judgment upon those who disobeyed his law. God removes imparted sin or idolatry from the land. And then we have the really strange one of the woman in a basket. And if you remember, the angel shows a prophet a basket like a, uh, like a grain basket that could hold an ephah, which was three-fifths of a bushel, if that makes you any wiser. <laughs> um, she's, she is wickedness personified. And the angel says, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. And he seals the basket again with the heavy uh, lead lid. And uh, then two other women appear with stork-like wings. They pick up the basket and carry it to Babylon. And this strange picture, vision pictures suppressed wickedness to be banished from Israel and taken to Babylon, where it would eventually be freed. And you find the parallel to that in Revelation 17. But he's the judging one. Six, seven, yep. Yeah. And then in chapter 6, he's the crowned one, and we come to our final vision. Um, oh, uh, Zachariah sees four horses of different colours pulling four chariots coming between two bronze mountains. And they quickly run through the entire earth, then go before the Lord with the result that God's spirit has rest. And this vision represents a judgment upon the enemies of Israel. 
After the judgment, God's wrath will be appeased and rest ensues. Joshua receives a crown of gold and silver. The shoot or the branch will build the temple of the Lord. And the crown will be a memorial in the temple. The priest is not normally crowned. It's, they were separate roles, priest and king. Uh, but symbolically, it's pictured that Joshua is given a crown, but that crown's not his as king. He puts it in the temple that there will be a future fulfillment where a high priest will be both priest and king, which we'll see at the end of the book, of course. Um, this final vision brings the series of visions full circle. The first vision had pictured these horses at the end of their mission, and a similar vision of judgment also using the imagery of horses is found in Revelation 6, 1 to 8. Um, but here he is, finally, as the crowned one. But then in chapter 7, we find him as the rebuking one, and there you see uh, Zechariah seven thirteen, and he says to the nation, basically, I called and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. In the fourth year of Darius, the people asked if they should weep and fast in the fifth month to commemorate the destruction of the first temple. The Lord rebukes the practice of their practice of fasting for being insincere. He actually asked them, did you really fast for me, or was it in pity for yourself? is the implication, he doesn't actually say it, but it's implied. And he says to deal with one, another, uh, with one another's injustice, and it, it, <laughs> no, not injustice, to deal with one another in justice, loyal love, or chesed, uh, and mercy. Justice, mercy are more important than fasting. What he's basically getting at is what's your heart? What, what's your motive? If you're doing it for yourself, it's meaningless. If you're going through the ritual for you, in a fleshly way, it, it doesn't impress God one bit. It may impress others, but it doesn't impress God. Mark 7 deals with the same, same issue, the issue of the heart. Uh, Jesus pointed out to the Pharisees that they kept the law and, and went way further than the law intended, but their heart wasn't with God. These people here, uh, these people worship me, but they don't do it with a heart. And uh, that is the rebuke that he brings in chapter 7. But the beauty is that he doesn't ever stay there. Have you ever noticed uh, when, when the Lord brings conviction? He's also the restoring one. God gives Zion peace and truth. Jerusalem will be the city of truth. And he tells them they need to speak the truth with one another. The Lord says he is zealous for Zion with great, great zeal. The Lord will return to Zion and dwell amid Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be a thriving and safe place. More people will return from the east and the west. And encouragement is given to finish the temple. Judah was a curse, but it shall become a blessing. The Lord is, is as determined to bless now as he was to punish in the past. And he tells them to act righteously to one another. And so he takes them from fasting to feasting. And he says feasting is now more appropriate than the appointed fasting times. 
and he calls on them to earnestly seek him. And he says there's a day coming when ten men, ten Gentiles men, will take hold of the robe of one Jew. It's a picture repeated again in effect in chapter 14 as we just finished last week. So that's the first section. Uh, that's covered in a pretty quick form what's going on to the people, the message to the people of his time. Now, Zechariah, some years later, and, and some scholars, you know, love to say, oh, this isn't Zechariah, somebody else wrote this and added it to Zechariah's writings, but I, I believe that it was in the, the later times of Zechariah's life, the Lord gives him a vision of his first and second coming, the final outcomes of all this process that God is doing. And so we come to the prophecies fulfilled in Christ. First is the king on a cult. Just this is a summary. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday as recorded in the Gospels. That he would uh, be our high priest. Jesus is the ultimate high priest who offers himself as the purpose, perfect sacrifice for sin as described in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4 verses 14 to 16 and other references in the book of Hebrews. The first coming fulfilled those things. When Jesus says, it is finished, these were established and done, and our relationship with him was the possibility. But of course, we await one future aspect, and that's his future reign. Zechariah recloses with a focus on a restored Jerusalem, a faithful remnant of Israelites and Gentiles from all nations coming to worship him at the Feast of Tabernacles during his millennial reign. So let's look at the first coming of Messiah. This section looks forward some 500 years to the coming of the Lord Jesus. And in chapter 9, we see him as the kingly one, very similar to Matthew's portrayal. Uh, Matthew is the Jewish uh, go the, uh, gospel intended for ju a primarily Jewish audience, revealing how Jesus was the king. And uh, God's judgment uh, comes on neighbouring nations. And he, he gives a burden against the cities of Lebanon and the Philistines. Interesting that uh, David chose that this, uh, no, Colin chose that this morning for his communion talk. And this was fulfilled historically before the Lord came by the conquest of Alexander the Great. Uh, the coming of Zion's king, humble, and it pictures the coming of Zion's king, humble and riding on a donkey into, into Jerusalem. And it says, he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea. And the blood of the covenant will set prisoners free from the waterless pit. And Judah and Ephraim are the bow and the arrow to be drawn against Greece. Uh, that's a historical reference that you would need to, to reflect on. But, and he says that the grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine with the young women. Uh, God's people are to be released. It's a picture both of his first coming, but a picture of the fullness of his, of his reign as the kingly one. In chapter 10... We find he is the blessing one. He tells the people, ask God for rain, not false gods. 
they've been influenced by the pagan religions around them. And he's saying, you look to God, walk in trust and faith with him and the Lord will grant showers of rain. The people of God will conquer, he tells them, while idolaters will be led astray like sheep. And the Lord unifies his people. The houses of both Judah and Jerusalem will be brought back and Israel will be gathered into the land from across the earth. In chapter 11, we have the picture of him as the shepherding one. And it's a sad tale on the one hand of the results of rejecting God's true shepherd. Israel had a choice in his first coming. Are we going to receive him as our Messiah or are we going to reject him? And largely, individuals received him, but largely the leaders and the nation rejected him. Uh, Creation mourns, it says, because of the coming judgment. And Joshua is told to shepherd the flock meant for slaughter. He's to feed the sheep ready to be slaughtered. He's told to feed a flock of sheep for slaughter as the Lord will do with his people, particularly those who are rich and complacent. And he's given two staffs, and they're referred to by various names, but uh, the the direct translation would be favour and union. Zechariah dismisses three shepherds, and many think that that is prophets, priests and kings, the leaders of their day, and breaks the staff... uh, called favour, indicating the consequences uh, of being led wrongly, and playing the role of a shepherd, a good shepherd, Zachariah is paid what he sarcastically calls a princely sum of 30 pieces of silver. That ring a bell? Yeah, the price that Judas was paid to betray Jesus, uh, and uh, which he gives to the potter. And of course, Judas sacri- uh, committed suicide in the potter's field. Zechariah breaks the staff called favour, revoking the covenant made with all the nations, apparently to secure God's providential protection of Israel. And Zechariah is told to take the implements of a foolish shepherd to indicate that the Lord will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off. And he says, woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. And we have the history of Israel coming right up to present times in pictured and embodied in that. But he is the good shepherd who would care for his flock if they would respond to him. But instead they go the path of looking for the foolish shepherd. Then we come to the second coming of Messiah. The last section looks even further ahead to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Just as Jesus' first coming, someone has written, changed the entire world, and you think of the impact of, of the gospel spreading across through the Roman Empire and out into the uttermost parts of the world, just as uh, Jesus' first coming changed the entire world, his second coming will change the world forever. And so in chapter 12, we see the returning one. And he tells us that Jerusalem will be protected from attack by the Lord. Uh, And the means that it would be is that it, it will be like a cup of drunkenness and a heavy stone to the surrounding peoples that try to attack them. 
And in that day it says that the feeble or the weakest in Jerusalem shall become like David. And, we, and Colin also talked about David uh, fighting Goliath and, and so on and fighting the lion and the bear. And, and one of the things about David is that he was never defeated in battle. And even the weakest will be strengthened by God as they take up the fight with, with the Lord fighting for them. And the house of David shall be like God. The spirit of grace and supplication will be poured out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem when they, finally it says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. Uh, rabbis have a difficult time with that verse. They, they try to explain it away. Um, and, of course, they have a difficult time because how can God be killed? Uh, except that God in the Son, God the Son, uh, took that role. All Jerusalem will humbly repent, it says, wailing over the one pierce. That is the remnant that's left at the end. Um, then we see him as the smitten one. The, the, in chapter 13, the, the first picture is a picture of a fountain that will cleanse sin. Idol it says that idolatry and false prophets will not be tolerated. And there is a removal of idols and false prophets. Anyone who prophesies will feel ashamed. That is a false prophet. The man accused of being a false prophet insists the scars on his body are not the self-inflicted wounds often associated with false prophets, but merely the result of a brawl in his father's house, in his friend's house. Um, and the Lord calls for the swords to be struck against his shepherd, who is his companion. And we're told that a third of the nation uh, will be refined. Two-thirds will be judged, two-thirds will, will be killed. Israel will be scattered, smitten, refined, and eventually saved. And that brings us to chapter 14, the reigning one. The day of the Lord is coming when Jerusalem will be attacked. Half of the city will be taken off in captivity, but the remnant shall not be cut off. The Lord will fight against the nations that attack. The Mount of Olives, as he comes, will be split in half, uh, split in two, uh, allowing escape, and the living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. And they are able to escape down the valley, the, the big rift valley that will be put there. Um, and then water will flow, uh, living water, it says, will flow from those rivers. That means it's not just seasonal. It's all year round, it, the, these rivers, one to the sea and uh, one down through the eastern side, down through Jordan, down to the, uh, Mediter uh, the, uh, the sea on the bottom. And uh, this will be a very, very different time. God is to be one and his name one. You have there, the Lord will be king over the world, and on that day there will be one Lord, and his name the only one. There is a scourge uh, or, uh, for Jerusalem's opposers. It's a plague, and uh, uh, it is a plague of the flesh will melt on their bodies as they, as they come to attack. And uh, of the remnants of the nations that are left after this, 
there were, the plague is a plague of no rain, of drought, which will be the punishment for those uh, nations that do not uh, come up to the Feast of Tabernacles. And at this time, as, as everyone's coming, at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom, it says every pot is to be holy to, the, to God. And holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses, and every pot in Jerusalem shall become like the bowls before the altar. We looked at that last week. And what it is a picture is that the profane becomes holy. And it's a picture of the complete triumph of true worship. Now, there's a summary chart. If you want a copy, just let me know. Uh, sort of printed out of the summary of the themes of Messiah in each of the chapters. Okay, so that's, that's the stuff. But what do we do with it? Okay, so what? I can, I can give you a class lesson and I can tell you some history and what do you get out of it? What are we to do with it? Well, firstly, God cares about his people, Jerusalem and, the people, and Israel, and keeping his promises. His warnings to the people to return to God remains true for all people in all times. God's call for repentance and a return to God should remind us that God calls us to live holy lives and seek forgiveness when we disobey God. God is sovereign and remains in control even when it appears that enemies are winning. God will take care of his people. That God desires to restore hearts should always bring us hope. Now how this worked in Zechariah's time was in, uh, summarized in three primary areas. Firstly, it was messianic hope. Zechariah's prophecies brought hope to the Jewish people at a difficult time. The coming of the righteous king meant their salvation and restoration. It was also a remembrance of the covenant. God's covenant with his people is an ongoing promise of grace and the fulfilment of the promises reminded the people to put their trust in God's word. And it was a call to obedience. Zechariah urged his fellow Jews to obey God's commands and to rebuild the temple, symbolizing the spiritual restoration of the people. So what about today? First, we can remember that there is hope in the midst of difficulty. Zechariah's prophecy encourages us to look forward to the coming of Christ when we face trials and hardships in life. Second is to remember God's promises. Just as the Jews were reminded of God's promises, we need to remember his promises today and put our trust in his faithfulness. Also, it's a call to obedience. Zechariah urges us to obey God's commands, to allow him to rebuild our spiritual lives and honour him in all we do. Then it's salvation through Christ. We can be confident that the coming of Jesus fulfilled all of Zechariah's prophecies and promises us salvation through his death and resurrection. So in conclusion, come to the prophetic word. Zechariah's prophecy reminds us that we can trust 
in the prophetic word of God and look forward to his ultimate plan for salvation and redemption. In 2 Peter 1, 19, we read, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. God's passion for Jerusalem should inspire people to note uh, modern and contemporary events about the nation of Israel and the city and to be looking forward to his fulfilment of those promises. But it also speaks of a bright future. Zechariah's message is one of hope and restoration. Our future is bright because, the, because of the Messiah's victory over death and sin. He's with us all the way through, just as he was with in each of the chapters of the book of Zechariah with the people of Israel and looking forward to the future. And we're even mentioned there in two, pla two main places that the Gentiles will come. Um, where that grafted in uh, group of uh, Gentiles grafted into the vine during the church age, but during the millennial age also, when the final uh, the, the, the main judgments come, there will be nations that will gather to worship with the Jewish folk in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a it's a it's just a wonderful picture to get our eyes where God is telling us. You see the, the guy with the telescope here? <laughs> He's looking out to the distance. We're looking, and even though it may seem distant, we've looked at the span of time. We've looked at the fulfilment of the promises, and those yet to come are just as certain and just as sure as those that have already been fulfilled. Forget your eyes, looking to him. He is our Messiah. He is our King. Uh, the one thing about having a King, you know, we live in a culture that is incredibly individualistic. We, we inherited that from uh, 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 the influence of American culture on us, but uh, there's a little bit of Irish rebellious culture in there as well. It's, a, it's about me and what I want. But, you know, when you have a king if you disobey him he has the right to rule and to judge but if he is truly your king you swear allegiance to him you you devote yourself to fulfilling his duties his his desires and our king is a good king he's a good shepherd uh, who demonstrated uh, the quality of his character by laying down his life for us, that we, he might bring us to his Father, that he might bring us to God. Are you living with him? We've sung songs about, and, uh, and uh, uh, Ken's focused it on the uh, Jesus as King, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Are you living with him as Lord of your life? Have you come to him uh, in repentance? Are you going forward in repentance, putting off the old things of the flesh and seeking to honour him as your Lord, uh, as worthy of all your praise, 
as worthy of giving the whole of your life because he has already given his life for you. That's what this book brings us to remember and to focus on. He's calling for the people of Israel to come to that place and says it will happen one day. May that day, may this day be your day to honour him as your king. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this wonderful book. Yes, there are many things that are challenging in terms of detail. The whole of the prophetic scriptures, there's just so many threads to pull together. And, you know, Zechariah's only 14 chapters, but uh, Ezekiel has 47. The book of Revelation has 22. And. You've given us this picture to rebuild your plan and your purpose. Father, we just pray that you would speak to our hearts, that we would indeed honour you as King, and Lord, of, King of kings and Lord of lords, and be able to cry with uh, uh, the, the chorus of the heavens, hallelujah.